0: This is a time of taking in, taking in friendships, conversation, gaiety, wisdom, knowledge, beauty, holiness, and later, well, there'll be a time of giving out. This is Pints with Jack, season five, episode 49, A Severe Mercy Month, part two. Well, good morning or good evening, or whatever time you happen to be listening to us, everyone. This is Pints with Jack, your favorite weekly C.S. Lewis podcast, where Andrew, me, David, not here today, and Matt, my faithful companion, break down and discuss the works of C.S. Lewis. Having finished The Four Loves this season, we then uh, dipped into Ecumenism Month and Apologetics Month, we're looking forward to an episode of the Chronicles of Narnia, Horse and His Boy, and my wife will be joining us. But we are currently in a Severe Mercy month, looking at his book, uh, looking at the book A Severe Mercy by Sheldon Van Auken. For those of you who are joining us for the first time, we highly recommend you listening to episode one. We do a little synopsis of this book by Sheldon Van Aken, about the love and loss of his wife, Davy, and the role that C.S. Lewis played in their relationship and their both of their conversions to Christianity.
1: Side note, I am very excited for the Horse and the Boy recording with your wife.
0: I'm very excited excited just to find enough space where the two of us can sit down uh if <laughs> listeners haven't haven't heard we just moved uh this last week to winter Garden Florida, and we're uh the cardboard cuts and the disorganization of all the moving uh I'm looking forward to being done with that and setting in our new place and uh and enjoying I think that's coming up this week, isn't it? Yes, tomorrow the next day, something like that. In oh, any man, case, I better read the other half. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not I'm sure when it is. We're having thing. Memorial Day uh, tomorrow. But um, but yes, we're we're looking forward to Horse and His Boy, one of my favorite of the Narnia books. So uh, here we are. We're about to come to one of my favorite parts of any book, uh, the the Oxford section of this book.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we're going to pick up where, as a reminder for those last week, We had finished, they had their shining barrier, the appeal to love, that 10-year period, a couple experiences with potentially the beginning of Christianity, if you look retroactively that we discussed, the conviction of sin, the shadow of the mass, but they finished on their way to Oxford, and that's where we are at right now. The shining barrier is as strong as ever, and you know what they say, the night is darkest before the dawn. Uh, and so it is strong right now, but we're about to see what's going to happen. Just a, a quick recap. Sheldon and Davey Van Alken had met in their
0: early 20s, I believe, fallen in love Uh, during their college years, uh, got married and then devoted themselves to their own love, Uh, developed what they called the shining barrier to protect uh, anything against their own love, even to protect themselves. It was ultimately a pagan love. They hadn't considered Christianity or they thought about it and just dismissed it. But their religion basically was the religion of Eros, the religion of their own love for each other. They have been dreaming about uh, buying or having built a, a boat where they could sail around the world and enjoy each other's company. Um, and so they think about making the Gray Goose. Uh, but they also have been pursuing uh, education. And Van has gone to Yale. Then they have been trying to go to Oxford before the war. It was or right after the war, uh, World War II, in which uh, Van served as a naval officer. It was impossible. Van was actually, actually incidentally, at Pearl Harbor, watching Pearl Harbor uh, take place um, and serving in the Navy. So, after the war uh, in the early 50s, they make finally make their way to Oxford um, for him to study. And um, as they do, they begin to explore the implications of Christianity.
1: Well, and it starts because you said they made a God out of the love of Eros. Well, the love of friendship, not that they didn't have friendship before, but it was very much about them, really started to open up in another, to another level here at Oxford, I would argue. And he starts right off the bat that they have a group of five Christian friends. and. Very close. That he actually describes him as very intellectual, deeply committed to Christ, and right off the bat challenges our worldview of Christianity.
0: Let me jump in and just say yeah. that um as I was reading this book, uh, echoes of so much of Lewis's writing really informed it. So I love chronologies. Van writes this book in 1977 is when he publishes it. So by then Lewis is already 14 years past. And you can kind of hear structures and and echoes of Lewis's different books uh, in Surprised by Joy, where Lewis's reading and his friendships begin to point him towards Christianity, which really distresses him. I think Van is echoing that here. And so he comes to Oxford and meets a bunch of Christian friends. And then uh, Davy goes out and And goes to Blackwell's and comes home with an armful of books about Christianity and they really begin reading and exploring Christianity. It is really, I think, I think Van is writing it either consciously or subconsciously echoing some of the structure of Surprised by Joy.
1: And he talks about the books they got. Lewis's books, of course, Screwtape Letters, Miracles, Space Trilogy were some of the first ones. Talks about Chesterton, Sayers, Augustine, Graham Greene. I've never heard of that individual. Charles Williams, oh yeah, T.S. Eliot, Ah. the Power and the Glory. I'll have to check that out. Charles Williams and who else? I read, I read Charles Williams, uh, his Descent into Hell. That was senior year of college, and struggled with it. Struggled. I would love to read it now that I have a more, I guess, maybe mature understanding of stuff and even just maybe a little bit smarter than I was back then. But it was tough. I just didn't get into it and I had a hard time following it.
0: Yeah, Charles Williams. um, I'm actually finishing up my Northwind course on Charles Williams, even as we speak. Williams writes a series of supernatural thrillers, seven novels, in which you have this kind of ordinary English countryside or ordinary English life in the village, and the supernatural comes breaking in. So. In, That's probably what confused me. I don't think yeah. I was following it at all. Yeah, it's crazy. In War in Heaven, a little uh, English archdeacon goes into a sacristy and he discovers the Holy Grail and all kinds of magic are being worked around it and with it. And and so um, Once you find Charles Williams, nothing else will do. There's nothing like him, uh, mm. but it takes a little bit of getting used to. Currently working on a paper comparing The Place of the Lion, which was the first Williams novel that Lewis ever read, with Lewis's novel, that hideous strength, and so um, it's worth uh, it's worth. I wouldn't suggest readers stick with Charles Williams and force their way through. But once you're in the mood for that sort of thing, there's just nothing else like it, and um, and they're very very enjoyable of their own of their own type.
1: I'll give another chance,
0: and then T. S. Eliot figures really prominently. Um, the aerial poems, the Four Quartets. Mm-hmm. Um, re- really, uh, a big deal for 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 Sheldon and uh, and uh, for for Davy and Van.
1: Well, just a couple comments around this. So they're they're in the stage of exploring Christianity. Well, that a couple things stuck out to me. So one was what they felt they needed to believe, and I, and I like this summary. They needed to believe the same God who made the world had lived in the world and had been killed by the world, and that the proof of this was his resurrection from the dead. And so that's what they were trying to ask himself, is there not only a creator of the universe, they were somewhat theists, as you mentioned before, uh, but did he come into this world? Did he die for the world? Did he die by the world? And then was he resurrected? And so there's a lot, you know, right off the bat, just name it, this is what we're going for. And then the other thing that stuck out to me is, is Van points out that there was an extreme all or nothing. We've already kind of seen that that's just very natural to their personality. But I believe in this case it's true. You know, you can't really half-ass Christianity. Mm-hmm. And so it says, he he says in the book, it is impossible to be incidentally a Christian. The face of Christianity must be overwhelmingly first or nothing. This suggests a reason for the dislike of Christians, by nominal or non-Christians. What stuck out to me here was that his he has the right mindset. This isn't to be taken lightly. It's it's of infinite importance, or it's just completely false and doesn't matter in the slightest. But right, that's, that's why- the Lewis quote.
0: Christianity, yes. if true, is infinitely important. Um, and if false, it's of no importance at all. The one thing it cannot be is moderately important. And I think yes. Van is echoing that very, very quote here. I think he's also echoing the idea of the essay, First and Second Things. Mm-hmm. Um, where Lewis talks about the importance of putting first things in the first place. and the the essence of the argument can be seen in in that quote that we keep coming back to from four loves, that love, when it ceases to be a demon, when it ceases to be a god, when a secondary love takes the place of the primary love, then it will twist and go and and go bad. And so Van, I think, is really showing. Um, overtly and uh, you know and and implicitly, where he has read his Lewis.
1: Well, and I want to ask Pastor Lazo a question <laughs> of uh, newly ordained. The, the all or nothing. I mean, that's intellectually that's very true. I mean, you need to you need to fully surrender and give your life to Christ. But we all somewhat know that it's tough to give all of yourself because of our sinfulness, our brokenness, where we're at in the journey. But maybe you could say that we're giving all we can at this stage, but you could also argue that's an excuse. So I guess my question for you is, how do you judge, and that's a terrible word to use judge, but how do you judge or evaluate for your own life, I am giving it my all or all I can give, even though I know, like almost like if it's enough, but that's, difficult too, because it's like winning over God's love, I'm doing enough, which that's dangerous. But you also don't want to just pretend that that's a question you don't you shouldn't ask yourself, because you do need to value your life and ask, is God number one or is he number two? Is he number three? What things are ahead of him? And then when you identify some things that are ahead of him, how much grace do you have on yourself versus you know realizing you do need to get rid of that? I guess I'm just curious your thoughts on some of that. You know, I just uh,
0: having left Virginia Theological Seminary, one of the things I missed most was having access to the marvelous um, contemporary theologian, uh, Kate Sonderager, who is mm-hmm. working on volume three of her planned five-volume systematic theology. Uh, but one of the things she of talks Lewis about- Lewis or just in general? No, system- no she's doing a, a systematic theology. She's doing um, Got- books about the doctrine of God. Gotcha. Right. And so she's writing a book about Christ, uh, writing a book about – she wrote a book about the Trinity. Mm-hmm. One of the – in, in I think volume two of her systematic theology, she talks about the current greatest sin of contemporary culture. And what do you think that is? If she, you, you could name one thing that's the, the, current, the sin of the current culture.
1: I feel like it's being too forgiving of yourself.
0: <laughs> her greatest sin that she addresses is idolatry.
1: Oh, I can see that. Yeah.
0: And if we think of idolatry, not about me setting up an, pole, an pole outside of my my room, but idolatry as me giving priority and time and thought and care and worship to anything that is in my image or the work mm. of my hands rather than the image of God, which is Christ and I the like work that. of God's hands. And so idolatry is fundamentally never true. There are no other gods but God. But idolatry is me worshiping the created things in the place of the creator. And that's something that God will not have. And so even the shining barrier becomes, I think, and this is me putting terms in it that I don't think Van really talks about. I think it's it's becoming idolatry for him. And this is what Lewis (laughs) says about this all or nothing in Mere Christianity. Uh, From the chapter, is Christianity hard or easy? (laughs) Christian way is harder and easier. Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I have not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. No half measures are any good. I don't want to cut off a branch here and a branch there. I want to have the whole tree down. I don't want to drill the tooth or crown it or stop it, but have it out. Hand over the whole natural self, all the desires which you think innocent, as well as the ones you think wicked, the whole outfit. I will give you a new self instead. In fact, I will give you myself and my own will shall become yours. Mm. And so this is the all or nothing that they begin to see with Christianity. And this is what Van, I think, in retrospect, is discussing here, that Christ demands all, all of us.
1: Well, this actually fits nicely because the next part that I was going to highlight was he goes in a period, Van does where he starts corresponding with Lewis, throws a letter to him, thinks nothing's going to come of it, doesn't expect a response. And before you know it, starts a relationship going back and forth with some. In one of the letters he writes to him is the toughness of humility. Like what if this Christ is true, what it will mean for his life. Like he has no false idealism. Ironically, he has a huge idealism towards romantic love. He does not have an idealism towards what Christianity is. He knows what it will will ask of him. And he says this, and he's writing this to Lewis. Your point that Hitler and Stalin and I would be horrified at discovering a master from whom nothing could be withheld is very strong. Indeed, there's nothing in Christianity which is so repugnant to me as humility, the bent knee. If I knew beyond hope or despair that Christianity were true, my fight forever after would have to be against the pride of the spine, may break out, but it never bends. Like he gets it. This is all or nothing is going to mean, it's almost like he gets it also in the context of his shining barrier. It's going to mean a complete unraveling of kind of the self-centeredness they have <laughs> to some degree. And so that, that really jumped out to me.
0: Well, and this quote, um, the spine may break, but it never bends. Remember that um, Lewis and Wade of Glory in 1942 says that the burden of my neighbor's glory should be placed upon my own back and the backs of the proud will be broken. Mm. And so this is, this is an echo. This is Van Ocken echoing um, is well-read Lewis that we have to think of others uh, as better than ourselves.
1: On oh, the back of the proud broken, by the way, that just made me jump out to the the question that I had actually just asked you a bit of giving it your all or not. The back of the proud person trying to attempt to give it them all will be broken. But when yes. you humbly come to Christ saying, I give you my all, even though I can't, I'm broken. I have my own ways. It's like, he will actually then take your all from you in a good sense. And like, maybe that is the answer to my question. I'm sitting here trying to think through how do I do it and with my pride and I want to make sure I'm giving my all and it, ha- it leaves no room for Christ's grace to help me surrender my ego. And, that's, and I feel the weight of that. Yeah.
0: And even the inclination to surrender the ego is Christ's grace. And you find yes. that in, of course, that marvelous band, Lean Ash and Sixpence None the Richer. Um, you know, the song Kiss Me. And um, No,
1: Andrew, I do not know what those are, yes, <laughs> but I appreciate you know, the assumption me, that the, I do.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's in, I heard Lee Ash uh, play no it, and she said, me. um and in the milky
1: twilight. Yeah. She, oh. uh, she said that, Um,
0: I was taking a stab in
1: the dark, it was just I didn't even think that was remotely the same one.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, that's the one. I uh, know. But the band is called Sixpence None the Richer, and it comes from a phrase in Mere Christianity. Where really? Lewis says that we can't even we can't give anything to God because even our giving to God is on loan from God Himself, and no man but a you know so a father may be well pre- pleased if his child says, "Daddy, give me sixpence so that I might buy you a gift." He'll be pleased with the gift, but only a fool would think that he's and he's sixpence to the good. <laughs> right. It cost him sixpence just for us to give him our, our gift. The grace of Christ, uh-huh. even to and here, you know, and it's 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 fun for me to watch you grapple with that because in some ways that's at the core of one of the really good um reform doctrines. This is at the heart of Calvinism. It's total depravity that we can't do anything to give to God, because there mm-hmm. is no good in us unless God
1: puts it in. Mm-hmm. I've been trying to go find a book where I had read this. I found my little paper on it, but um with Augustine, cooperating grace, that idea that we're, we're everything is grace, we're saved by grace, and even the coming to faith is a grace. Like it's mm-hmm. but but we do have to cooperate. But there's like I remember the very first time I read that, and it's very similar. Like you can't even claim like our our saying I love you, Lord, or coming to Christ without his grace mm-hmm. in the beginning.
0: Yeah. Well, and it's gr- grace, If grace is a gift, even the gift mm-hmm. to draw breath, to have speech, to have a mind that can conceive of it, 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 it all goes back to him. And so, yes, it's kind of self abandonment, this humility, this giving up of self. It's tough. But then that's part of what I love about Lewis. I mentioned in the last episode, speaking at St. Cecilia's Church a couple of weeks ago in Houston, my talk was called door or, door or Doorway. So I think that Lewis is a door an object worthy of study, but he's also a doorway through whom we can walk to find other authors, other ideas. And ultimately uh, Lewis should serve as a doorway to Christ. But for me, he's a doorway to Tolkien and to Chesterton and to MacDonald and to so many friendships. He was a doorway to my marriage. Um, but as a as a door, he's also an object worthy of emulation. Um, and that's what saints are to a certain degree, doors and doorways. And this humility for somebody who is so arrogant and so smart uh, is, I think, a real deliberate act on Lewis's part. And I think it's his second, or it's his first letter to Van Achen after Van Aen converts to Christianity. So he begins corresponding with Lewis. And telling him about a spiritual journey, and uh, Lewis has some wonderful and humorous and humble things to say. There are 18 previously unpublished letters um, by Lewis in *A Severe Mercy*, and those are the first letters that were, you know, outside of copyright. That it's, you know, that that you can freely, you know, quote from without paying for it. As Van Acken's about to convert, Lewis says, "I think the Holy Spirit is after you. You're in the meshes of the net, and I don't believe that you shall get away." And then once he converts, Lewis concludes his first letter to Van Aen. And this is Lewis in 1951. He's um, uh, he's he's about to end up his time at Oxford. He's incredibly busy. Minto is dying. Um, I mean, it's just a, a difficult time for him. But as soon as Van Aaen converts, Lewis writes him back by return of post and he concludes blessings on you and a hundred thousand welcomes. Make use of me in any way you please and let us pray for each other always. Mm. Here's this preeminent scholar saying, Make use of me any way you please. And I, you know, that phrase is so convicting to me. How often do I think that I'm better than this one or that one? You know, or that, that one's th- this answer to an email or this gift is 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 not the best use of my time. Walter Hooper said that his motto, Lewis's motto was, when in doubt, give more, or when in doubt, answer the letter. Um, and so, make you, of me, any way you please, I think, is the outward working of the inward humility to which Lewis challenged himself. And that's something that really, that Davey and Van, especially Van, really grapple with.
1: Well, and that flows right to the next part of this. You know they're wrestling with this. There's a few initial letters with Lewis pre-conversion, and then the conversion happens. And they were not at the same moment. Davy was a couple months earlier, and at least the way Van describes it, hers was more. She had the intellectual side for sure. She was reading the books and exploring that, and very much probably had an intellectual conversion. But he draws her back to that uh, sin painting, the conviction of sin, the pain. That there was just something emotional too, like a need that she was experiencing with that brokenness that really drew her to Christianity in a way that Van didn't feel as much. You know, his was very much more the intellectual one. So there was a couple months period where they were not overlapping with that. He, he, he didn't fake it, he tried to genuinely give himself and then the next day realized, nope, I'm not ready. Uh, so it kind of came back. But when he did, this was very pivotal to me. When he describes his. So for him, because mine was much more the intellectual side too, he wrote Lewis a letter and he really wrestled with the fact that he was having a hard time. He thought Christ was probable, but wasn't proven. And so he, he found that there was still this gap that he could not close. He couldn't jump forward. And it dawned on him, and I can't remember, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, Andrew, if, if it was brought to his attention by someone or a book you read or just an insight that he had that... Yes, there was a gap forward to to jumping into leaping into faith of Christianity. But he turns around and he realizes there's a bigger gap backwards Mm -hmm. to going and rejecting Jesus Christ. And Mm -hmm. so it wasn't a a binary choice of jumping forward or not jumping at all. He needed either jump forward or jump backwards. Mm. And one gap was much smaller than the other one. Hmm. And so I remember when I read that because I mentioned to you when I had read Mere Christianity, it didn't convince me yet of Christianity, but there was a truth and a beauty here that I was drawn to and it got me on this exploration. And you could argue my true surrendering didn't really happen until maybe right after college when I was in San Diego, there was an intellectual ascent that was occurring in my senior year with a the theology minor. But that re- that realization really helped me, kept me going forward realizing, yeah, I've read enough. I've read stuff on the atheistic side that it would be too hard. I wouldn't be able just to stop this journey. I guess for me, it kept me going because I was like, I can't stop because stopping isn't the same thing. You need to turn around and go backwards or you need to go continue going forward. And for me, it was like, well, I can't, I can't envision myself going backwards. Mm. I've read too much. I've, I've seen too much intelligence to this, too much beauty to this, too much rigor to this. It's been tested over thousands of years and it just really, it, it kept me going. Hmm. I
0: hadn't ever thought about it in these terms and it's an imperfect analogy. And so uh, I don't stand by it. I haven't thought it out, and but that never stopped me from speaking it out. Um, <laughs> no surprise to anyone. Um, people often talk about, uh, oh, well, you've made the leap of faith and I can't make a leap of faith. I need to be convinced by reason. And, you know, it's too far a jump for me you know, this Kierkegaardian phrase that I think is highly misunderstood and it's, it's glommed on by people who don't believe as to feel superior. Well, you're just more credulous than I am and you're less thoughtful than I am is sometimes the attitude behind that. Um, I think maybe the leap of faith is, and this is, like I said, is an imperfect analogy and it's mostly because we now live in a house with some stairs in it. And so maybe it's, you take a step up each stair in the darkness um, and you know that there are stairs. And then when you get to that last stair, you may not be able to see the landing of the next stair. But you take that step or you even jump up that stair, assuming that the landing is going to be there because the landing on the previous step has always been there, even if you can't see it. So the leap of faith forward is a much smaller step than, like you said, and like Van says, the leap going all the way back down. Yes. And so I wonder if maybe the answer to people who are afraid of the leap of faith is to say, don't take a leap of faith, but let's examine the evidence. Let's examine the resurrection. Let's examine the historicity. Let's examine the documents. And is it reasonable to believe in Jesus? And, you know, Lewis said that his conversion to theism was, as far as he understood it, entirely a rational process right? And people can go a far way down that rational process. It's not like I have to just go from disbelief to believing it all and jumping. And I can't do that because I'm too sensible. That's not it at all. If somebody says they're not willing to take the leap of faith, great. Don't take the leap of faith. But like you were saying, take all of those steps intellectually, if that's the way that you have to go. Mm -hmm. I think that Davey I'm not sure if maybe Davy had more time with with her books and you know on Christianity and Van was studying at Oxford, I'm not sure what made her willing to take that step. I do though, kind of sympathize with Van because I swooned over the love of the first half of the book. And then when Davy abandons this this you know when she embraces the separateness, when she commits herself to Christ before Van does, it seems like such a violation to me because they had decided not to do anything apart from each other. But of course she has to say yes to God. So I think that's maybe more of the leap and it's troublesome in the book.
1: And I can't wait until part three of this conversation. Uh, interestingly enough, which is a lot of her death and both death, but we're going to get to talk about the beauty of Davy. I yeah. feel I feel in this middle part, you actually don't get to see or experience quite as much of her saint-likeness, her holiness, her devotion, her all-in, her commitment to Christ. I mean, you just briefly alluded to there of, we just had a person who has lived her 10 years before, shining barrier, all or nothing for this. And then right when she comes to believing in Christ, kind of gave that up. It wasn't Mm -hmm. spoken of, and we, we will actually talk about, there's a bit of a transition period with that where it was kind of unspoken that this appeal to love might be gone and the shining barrier, but how quickly she was for truth. And I actually think there's something, a grace to that, how I would have sympathized if there was a couple years of a transition period or dying to that old self, but it was like, Oh, Jesus is true. I'm called to do this done. Mm -hmm. I mean, incredible devotion and commitment that she had. So,
0: and I think that that bothered van. One of the things that, um, that delighted me, Um, but even then when I first read it, I found it a little extreme. Uh, Van has a couple of pages where he talks about how they could be in constant communication with each other, even during a party, they had signals, they had key (laughs) phrases, they didn't even have to look at each other, you know, and they had this, this, you know, so even in their social events, you know, and he relates this one incident where he glances at the candlesticks on their, or she glances at them. Or uh, they're on the mantelpiece, and there it's a party. They've got friends over, and she's just in the middle of a conversation. She glances at the candlesticks, and then Van gets up and goes and lights them. And that's how in sync they are, right? They know each other, and they have done. They have developed this whole language of symbols and signs, even if they weren't in physical or eye contact. They just were aware of each other. And to me, that seems a little obsessive now or a, a lot obsessive. But it's the end of exactly what they are trying to do, to be connected with each other, you know, even even in a room. So for them to be that clearly connected and then David to just go, yeah, okay, I'm a Christian now, you know, and I'm going off to church. And so Van puts himself in a really dangerous position where he begins to be jealous of Jesus. Well, God will have no rivals. And God is a jealous God. And if you're jealous of God and God is jealous for God, who's gonna win that? And so that becomes this you know, this real trouble. But that part of that is that that she allowed the invasion of the shining
1: barrier. Well, and and I'm jumping a couple of things here and we can potentially jump backwards, but we're we're in post conversion now. They've they've mm-hmm. committed themselves. Davy may be a little bit more all in than Van at this stage. But I wanted to ask you this question. How would you reconcile the shining barrier, the appeal to love, that that paganism to Christianity? Cuz you somewhat just touched on it a bit mm-hmm. of how part of it is not reconcilable, uh but then part of it is like I I think I was just trying to think through how their early life really led them to this honestly, how there there was Christianity. We we will see this later when Van says Heaven and hell are retroactive. You can almost retroactively see Christianity in their life, in their shining barrier, in their appeal to love. Um, but it was it was just bits and pieces. There was also other stuff mixed in there.
0: Yeah, I think the reconcilia- reconciliation of the shining barrier for me it comes. Um, it reminds me of a conversation I had with a friend from work. Oh my goodness, um, twenty years ago, more, twenty five years ago, perhaps. And we were reading. We had a a book group. We were reading miracles. I was kind of doing it apologetically. I invited people whose minds I admired, but who weren't Christians to read this book. And I was hoping that they would see the truths of Christianity. And I remember him asking me, well, I'm an artist. Should I pursue my art, which I love and believe in? Or should I really pursue Christianity, which I don't hold to? And it's against my philosophy. And I said, well, I think that if you pursue your art truly, it will lead you to the source of all creativity, right? Mm -hmm. And so this shining barrier at one point led them in one sense, led them away from God. It led them to, in some ways, almost like this inner ring between the two of them. The dwarfs are for the dwarfs, you know, Sheldon and Van are for Sheldon and Van or, you know, Davy and Van are for Davy and Van. But in another sense, it led them out of themselves. And so the enemy was certainly trying to use it. Uh, But the Lord, this move of, uh, so God is the great sieve. He will strain through all of our mixed motives and all of our behaviors. And he will pull out those things, which like in great divorce, uh, and that's mixing a metaphor. He will sieve through the ash of our fire and pull out just those little live coals that can be blown into full flame, like Lewis says in The Great Divorce. I think it's McDonald. know, I've seen even those embers blown into into fire. Um, And so the shining barrier certainly contains a number of things which are good and godly and requisite for salvation. In that they are self-focused and not Christ-focused, then those parts are going to have to die in order to be raised again.
1: The word that was coming to my mind, I think that's spot on, was the beauty the beauty within it. So if we go back to the beginning of this part one, and we didn't talk as much about this. And there's also, I believe in the prologue, but he, he mentions progression of seeking happiness, seeking joy. And he thought emotions were a part of it. And then the highest emotion was joy and joy comes from loving beauty. And if you don't believe in a God, the ultimate love is a love of another. And so the shining barrier and appeal to love were really about protecting the beauty of love, the love between them, them too. And so that was almost there, but when you, but there, and there's something good in that, the the desire for beauty, it was just assuming the, the stopping point of that beauty was the ultimate love from like novels and poets of just another person. Mm-hmm. When in the end, there's an actual capital B beauty, like there's a capital T truth and a capital L love in. When and I think the way you reconcile is that almost like that shining barrier appeal to the actual beauty in the actual love. It's like almost just now you can apply that towards Christianity, um, just like taking it a step further. So it almost goes back to what we talked about with G.K. Chesterton on the last episode. The Christianity saves paganism from itself, and so the shining barrier appeal to love without Christianity was going to end up most likely leading to problems, whether it's a decade, two decades, three decades, four decades from now. But in the end, it saved it by like an appeal to – I almost want to say it was still an appeal to love, but it wasn't their love. It was God love.
0: I think that you're right to notice the appeal to beauty because that's such an important part of Lewis's own conversion. And I think that Van either – like I said, um, consciously or subconsciously is channeling some of Lewis and surprised by joy. Remember that it's beauty, the beauty of the biscuit tin, the beauty of the mountains far away, the beauty, the stark beauty of northernness, It's beauty that draws the young Jack Lewis to experience joy. so beauty leads to longing and longing, you know it's 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 again, it's in way of glory. One day we shall shall be taken in, right? Um, we want to be in love, we want to be in beauty, and so beauty arouses in the soul this sense that there isn't perfection, but I want it. And that's kind of what's what's going on, I think both for Van and for Lewis. And so this joy, this longing, this desire, and um, if I'm right, the joy points to something other and outer. It points away from the self. And Lewis was so long consumed with this love for self this love of beauty this wanting to have the pangs of longing again is not at all dissimilar to the shining barrier they wanted this thing um to, to they wanted to have it but yes. things are movable and so that's part of what what they come up against
1: he had this conversation with lewis actually in in your spot on longing you know beauty if you kind of use them they're not the same thing but beauty points to longing i like how you said that but he said everything prior to this pointed to this Uh, meaning to to christianity island in the west in pilgrim's regress that's something we long for whether it be an island in the west which was for him or the other side of a mountain or perhaps a schooner yacht Mm -hmm. long for it in the belief that it will mean joy which never fully does because what we are really longing for is god yeah and so yeah the shining barrier and appeal to love were we're pointing to something even further. And because I, I kind of stand by that comment I made in the last episode, there's an authentic, t- authenticity to them. God mm-hmm. honored that and eventually steered it in the right direction. It was wrongly focused due to what you pointed out, immaturity, naivety, uh, youngness. But God worked with that and out of that breathed the true ends of what they were looking for.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, and remember your Screw Tape, right? Uh, screw Tape's goal is to get us off even just a little bit, because we're eternal creatures. So if I get off even just a little bit from what God wants about anything, he, Screw Tape's always doing the multiple math, right? He's multiplying that by a thousand or ten thousand years. If I get off a little bit in ten thousand years, I'm going to be way out in the wasteland, right? And yes. so in the same way. God is allowing these things in our life, which if I begin to treat them wrongly, eventually will lead to ruin, loss, decay, like I, like I mentioned from your Christianity. But then God's going to take those difficult things in my life and correct them so that they point to God. And like I said in the last episode, this must be frightfully good for me to take mm-hmm. even the untoward circumstances as corrections, right? Right. Uh, towards the best thing. It's the law of undulations to realize when I'm down that, that I will be rising again to realize when I'm rising that I'll probably fall down again, you know, and to acknowledge that God will use all of these things in my life in order to perfect me into the image of his son. And that's what Vance finding out uh, about the shining barrier.
1: So we're at this point, they had an encounter with light. There's a friendship with Lewis. Now they've converted to Christianity there's a little bit of a, a separateness that's coming between them that's that's uh coming about. So now we're at this point where we're the 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 remainder of the Oxford period. We'll kind of zip through this part, but they have this studio and there's this community that develops. It's really honestly, this part is really did draw me to this book. The beauty of the way they lived was incredibly communal. Talk about also a complete 180 from just them to let let's shut out the world to. Complete openness to a community. He says, he took a random period out of their journal and 30 people came within a week. Six nights, people were there. They have this fireplace. They'd come and have intellectual conversations. They'd read books. They'd talk about life, whether it was Christian or non-Christian stuff. It was just a very open thing and constantly, they had to leave their apartment just to get any sort of work done because it became the central hub location of this this vibrant intellectual life. And that goes back to the quote of the week that you read, the gaiety, the wisdom, the joy, the sharing. I mean, it was just, it was really incredible what they described and honestly enviable. I mean, how cool to be to have that kind of friendship. They actually just went from like like extreme Eros to honestly a pretty extreme friendship, like love became Mm -hmm. so important. It was dominating their life in so Mm -hmm. many ways.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Their studio apartment, their their studio apartment, they called St. Udios, which <laughs> I love. Um, and it's this sense that I think comes up that they, well, Lewis talks about it in uh, some reviewer, I've mentioned it on this podcast before, uh, reviewing William Morris's poem, Love is Enough. And the reviewer said, it's not. Um, what they found was Eros was not enough. And it wasn't that they abandoned their love or they abandoned they abandoned their commitment to avoid separateness. But in Oxford, they met such a great circle of friends. And I think what they were experiencing there is a little bit of maturity. They're in their late 20s or early 30s, I believe, at this time. And, and you know, you may want more than just Eros, even if your Eros partner is your best friend. But remember what Lewis said about the death of Charles Williams. And he said in The Four Loves, now that Charles is gone, I have not more of Ronald, but less of him. More Now that Williams is gone, I don't have more of Tolkien because I have him to myself. I have less mm-hmm. of Tolkien. I'll never see that particularly Caroline or Charles-like look on Tolkien's face. So friendship, the perfect number for friends is not two but at least three or four or five, right? Um, And so the inklings provided for Lewis this sense of friendship that's exponential and grows the love. And I think that it's not at all unusual that when they get to St. Judea, when they get to Oxford and they begin meeting Christian friends, once again, an echo of what was happening for Lewis in in, um, Surprised by Joy, these friends and the books that they were reading. And they, it expands their love for each other. So this is not Davy and Van having to have secret signals at a cocktail party that was abominable and, and detestable. This is Davy and Van learning each other within the context of other friends. And yes, Eros had its firm place. And then Philia comes. Um, I imagine that had they decided to have kids or whatever, Storgi would have come and made its claims but all of these loves would eventually point to Christ, who is the source of all love.
1: That was really well said. I'm, I'm glad you connected that to the four loves. And for anyone listening to this too, as, as someone who has experienced pretty close to this kind of community in San Diego, there was a, a Catholic parish I was a part of that was just one of the most vibrant young adult communities I've ever been a part of, and then left it and have not been able to re-experience it, honestly, since you can't underestimate the power or don't underestimate the power of community and just the sharpening each other, uh, iron sharpening iron and the way that it just, it's, it brings joy. It brings, um, happiness. It brings so much fulfillment. And so I'd strongly encourage people to just seek out community and read this book, be inspired by it. It's a very beautiful part about this.
0: Well, community is going to fundamentally let us down ultimately, but I think that this is also, uh, in this world it will, but I think this is also perhaps a picture of um, of what heaven may be like, where we're all yeah. are tr- truly ourselves and we can enjoy each other without our, our selfishness. And in some ways, anytime I hear a beautiful piece of music, oh my gosh, every time I've been to Oxford, we've heard the City of Oxford Orchestra play Gabriel's Oboe. With a famous mm-hmm. oboist, and um, I always go away from that thinking I'll recognize heaven because I it will have because this beautiful earthly music is an echo of the heavenly song going on, and I think too that our earthly friendships, our um, echoes, our earthly communities, are echoes of how true philia ultimately fulfilled in Christ uh, will will be, and so. There's this, love should always provide an echo of love himself, uh, of, of God, and the love within the Trinity, right? The imminent, mm-hmm. uh, the imminent love of the Trinity. Yeah, I think that it's a pointer towards, towards the fact that we need others to be part of our loves.
1: Well, and that's more or less going to wrap up this part of the section of their time in Oxford. But I wanted to just add, bring one other thing and get your thoughts on it briefly. In here, he talks about this incarnation analogy. And I thought it was interesting and maybe it could be helpful for others for understanding the incarnation. Like how can God be the author of the universe, but then be a part of the same universe is the short answer, and or the question. And he uses the example of an author of a book. He goes, imagine I write a book, but then I write myself into the book. And then he even extends the analogy, and he says, and then imagine, so I'm, I'm first of all, I'm outside of the time, the book, but I'm writing myself at different points into the book. And then the characters that are invented that are not him also have a piece of him in them. and I thought that was a very interesting analogy. I'm curious if you feel like it, it's a worthy one and holds, <laughs> holds water.
0: Well, uh, it absolutely is a worthy analogy. And that's mostly uh, because, again, one of the riches of, of Severe Mercy is the echoes that it has to Lewis's other writings.
1: <laughs> Did he take it from Lewis? <laughs>
0: oh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. There's he absolutely took it from Lewis. Uh, but when he's talking about an author trying to write himself into the play, right? And so he writes himself into Hamlet. And an author is – when he's explaining the incarnation, he's explaining – he explains it using terms of, uh, of the drama. So once again, I think that it's Van's um, – I think van is is borrowing um this uh this th- th- an analogy from lewis
1: I, I appreciate this story, but I don't place the same weight theologically uh, of on van Aken as I do Lewis and so now knowing that Lewis has extended this analogy gives me more confidence that it's well no analogy is perfect, it probably can be extended pretty far and wide
0: It's this sense that oh here it is um If Shakespeare and Hamlet could ever meet, uh, it must be Shakespeare's doing. Hamlet could initiate nothing. Shakespeare could, in principle, make himself appear as author within the play and write a dialogue between Hamlet and himself. The Shakespeare within the play would, of course, be at once Shakespeare and one of Shakespeare's creatures. It would bear some analogy to the incarnation. So. Yeah, I think that that may be surprised by joy.
1: So we'll take it some analogy. Yes. So he thinks it works to some degree. Yeah, absolutely. I could see how people could, I could see how people could push back and say, the Shakespeare in the book and the Shakespeare outside are not the same, even though they have the same characteristics or he's writing them in at the exact same moment. Maybe that's the how it's not the perfect analogy, but there's some.
0: It's not a perfect analogy, but yep. you know, people have been struggling to to understand <laughs> the uh, the incarnation for thousands of years, and there aren't any perfect analogies, you know, clearly.
1: But I like uh, it. Yeah. Well, that brings us, Andrew. I think I, I hear the last bell.
0: Oh, yep. I'm sorry. It's in the checkmate chapter of Surprise by Joy. So thank you to my
1: iPhone. But here we are. It's the last bell. And listeners, we are going to pick up next time, next week with the final part. And that's going to be unpacking a lot of the key themes. And there's going to be some real beauty. We've already obviously talked about the terminal illness that's going to dive into and the grieving afterwards and the lessons learned from that and continued communication with Lewis and the lessons that he's learned. And really a journey towards like true falling in love with divine love and dying to that old love. It was different for... Van and there's gonna be some tough stuff in there too. Some very, yeah, just honestly, some tough stuff to swallow. Absolutely. And so it's gonna be a fun, it's gonna be a, an intense one, a fun one. So definitely join us next week uh, as we dive into that. But beforehand, we want to say thank you to all of our Patreon supporters, every one of you guys. And uh, we love to highlight our top tier ones, but we, we are grateful for all of you guys and the entire Slack community. Angela, Deborah One, Deborah Two, Marvin, Joelle, Thomas, Anani Mouse, Bill and Joanna, Snort, Bud, Shane, John, Kevin, Brian, Kay, Paul, Kimberly, Gillis, Gary, Steven, Matt, Kelly, Chris, John, James, Kate, Peter, David, and Rowdy. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. This is a, this is a fun series to be able to share with them on a book where they can get a chance to really hear about a journey towards Capital L Love without reading the book and then hopefully be inspired to read it. And please join us next week when we're going further up and further in. Cheers. Cheers.